Jesus was transitioning from one location where he had been teaching to another when he was confronted by a man who felt like he had a just cause and seemed to think in this passage of scripture with the limited information we have that Jesus could intervene on his behalf. In the first century AD, in the Middle East, inheritance was typically split between the brothers. No offense, ladies, we've corrected some of that in 2022. And it was split between the older brother and the younger brother in thirds. So the other brother got two thirds, the younger brother gets one third. This individual, apparently with the limited information we have, is upset, feels like that's unnecessary or inappropriate or wrong and asked Jesus to step in on his behalf, essentially requesting more. Jesus interprets the man's actions as an indication of greed. And then Jesus gives us a great parable, one of these fictitious stories that Jesus uses to help teach and and drive home a point that helps us understand not just simply the spiritual nature of things and the nature of God, but helps us understand practical, insightful ways for us to live our lives effectively. And this story describes a man who would do the normal, instinctual response to his wealth. He had accumulated wealth and his normal, instinctual response to that wealth was to preserve it, to keep those things so that he could always have them in a very real sense to hoard them so that he had it all to himself and he would secure himself forever. The only problem is while he could control his crops, he could control his resources, he can control the storage methods for his resources, he cannot control when his life comes to an end. And in the the sadness of that moment, Jesus helps us see what our proper perspective about wealth should be. The Bible actually does not condemn wealth. It condemns an obsession or a love of wealth. There are lots of people in scripture who do the right things with wealth. And there are lots of people in scripture who are impoverished and poor or poorer than they want to be, which oftentimes is the case, and they do the wrong things and let greed overwhelm them in those moments. Jesus' story helps us gain a biblical, godly perspective on how we handle the wealth we have. It's in Luke chapter 12. I'm going to read it in its entirety. So if you want to go to that location, you want to look at it with me, it's in Luke chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 13. We're going to pick up the dialogue between Jesus and this man who's upset about the way his inheritance has gone. And we're going to pick up then the story that Jesus tells. This story that helps to understand how we live and how we live spiritually and how our faith impacts and touches every aspect of our life, including the accumulation of our wealth. So Luke chapter 12, Luke records this incident in verse 13. Someone from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Friend, Jesus responds, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? He told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed. And here's, I'm gonna mention several phrases that are worth underlining or highlighting in your Bibles. 
Watch out and be on, all, on guard against all greed. Here's the phrase. Because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Then he told him a parable, these stories that Jesus uses to teach. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I will tear down my existing barns. I will tear down my barns, build bigger ones, and store all my grain and all my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with one who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. Now, let me just real quickly explain one thing in the context because Jesus is not being intentionally rude when he calls this man in his story a fool. In, throughout scripture again, particularly in the Psalms, anyone who has a complete disregard for spiritual things is called a fool. The psalmist says, the man who says there is no God is a fool. It is a representation of the, the, the parallel between living earthly secular wisdom that has no regard for God and will take you to destruction ultimately or living with godly wisdom like in the Proverbs and in the Psalms and, and in wisdom literature like Ecclesiastes, taking wisdom that is inspired by God and living in a way that is not only successful but is healthy and meaningful and eternal in nature. It's very similar to what Paul says about the way our bodies deteriorate when he challenges the Corinthians and he says to them, fix your eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. The fool in scripture always looks at what's seen. He's always focused on the temporary. The wise individual in scripture always sees what's not seen and is always focused on the eternity. This little parable, I think, gives us several principles that help us understand not only what we do with wealth, how we manage it, but how we address it and how we respond to it and how we deal with it. And wealth is a subjective figure. It changes over time and in circumstances. And so we're not talking about a specific set of numbers. We're, we're not tax collectors. We're, we're not figuring out what bracket somebody's in. Because having a resource that maybe is your only resource might feel wealthy to one individual. And having, like this man, an abundance of resources you don't know how to appropriately manage or use could also feel like wealth. It is any resource and any amount of that resource that Jesus addresses. One of the first principles I'd share with you is probably one of the most critical ones that we ever face in life. 
We don't let our resources define us. If you're on the YouVersion app, let me just real quickly say this. The notes are there for you under events, but you can also go there this morning while you're in the service. YouVersion has now allowed us to put our church profile on there and you can select our church profile. You can join with us specifically. Easier to find the notes, easier to find the live stream, and we will be making recommendations of different Bible plans and different studies and, and things, and it helps us and it allows all of us to connect. And you'll find that in the notes on YouVersion. Don't let resources define us. Comes back to that phrase I asked you to highlight. One's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Now, that's kind of the negative. Jesus, Jesus is straddling both sides of this. He's telling us what to avoid. At the same time, the principles tell us what to focus on or where to address. So in this regard, we don't want to. We, we want to avoid letting our resources define who we are. What we want to do, the positive aspect of that is Christ is our identity. We know who we are. We define who we are because of our relationship with God, because how faith has allowed us into that relationship and God's grace and his love for us and the sacrifice of Jesus allowed it into that relationship and it defines us. We first believers in Antioch were called Christians in the scripture and that name and that label has carried on down. It often gets misinterpreted in many ways in today's culture, but that is who we are. The word Christian means a follower of Christ. That identifies us. Look at that phrase. One's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. But yet, most of us are constantly bombarded and challenged to define ourselves on the basis of what we've got. I, I used to be really bad about this, and I've had to, to, over the several years now, begin to just kind of hold my tongue because I have strong opinions about things that don't matter. We were driving down the road one day, and I look over at a vehicle and I say, that's the most ridiculous looking vehicle. I don't understand why anybody would want that. Years later, over a decade, I'm asking Carrie, my wife, what kind of car would you like? And she said, well, I really like that one, but you said. <laughs> so, well, I've grown in the last 10 years only to find out that it was discontinued and you can't do anything about mistakes you made. Like I just said that and somebody's gonna go up to her after the service and say, which car was it? And she's not gonna wanna answer you and I'm in trouble again. So y'all work with me on this. We make mistakes, we define ourselves that way. We define ourselves by our clothes. I can tell you every brand that's on me. No, I'm not going to, but I could. You could probably do the same thing. We, we begin to define ourselves by our resources and the things that we have, particularly wealth. We define ourselves. I mean, I, I kind of teased about not being tax collectors, but we think of and we are categorized by our government, by our standing, by our wealth, and whether that's good or bad and how much of that they want to take. The whole world begins to define us. We define ourselves from about where we live. I mean, we're fortunate it's easy because we live in Texas and we know it's the best place. But that's not, I mean, I am all of those things. I am a Texan. I got here as fast as I could. I was born in Tennessee. After I got here, I found out us Tennessee boys, we came to get you guys out of a scrap. 
None of us survived, but nonetheless, we tried. (laughs) We want to define ourselves by these things. And Jesus simply tells us our possessions, whatever they might be, whether it's our bank statement or whether it's our clothes or whether it's our vehicle, whether it's our house, whether it's which neighborhood, these possessions don't define us. We're defined because we know Christ. Don't let our resources direct us. Christ is our mandate. If we're defined and our identity is in Jesus, then our mandate is the mandate Jesus gives him. In verse 16, in the parable, as he starts it, he says, a rich man's land was very productive. That's a good thing. He thought to himself, what should I do? That's reasonable contemplation. I don't have anywhere to store my crops. And then he makes a decision in verse 18. Here's the other phrase I would underline or highlight. I will do this. So what's his response? How is he going to be directed? I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, store my grain and my goods there. What directed him was his resources. The conclusion of what I'm going to do with my life was a conclusion based upon the possessions that were defining him. We let Christ mandate us. And this is huge. It was a big lesson that I had to learn and deal with and comprehend after I became a believer. Because honestly, up until the point I became a believer, I just assumed everything was about me. Sometimes that guy creeps back and I still make those wrong assumptions. Parables like this help me understand it's not about me. It's about what God wants me to do. We quote it. We we quote it with the radio station every day at noon. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our resources don't direct us. Our possessions don't direct us. Our financial need or our desire for finances doesn't direct us. The mandate of Christ directs us. What if this same man had thought to himself, what am I going to do? In this particular case, there's a surplus of resources. What am I going to do with this surplus of resource? What if he had made an intentional decision to do something with eternal impact? What if he had made that decision to put those resources into something that would change lives forever? Maybe it's a church. Maybe it's a school. Better yet, maybe it's a Christian school. Maybe it's a medical facility. Maybe it's a medical ministry. Maybe it's missions where people can be funded and, and, and given the resources to go into the parts of the world maybe we're not able to go. What if you let the mandate of Christ guide our decisions? In that moment, it's not as if we're giving up something because what we're doing is making something possible that is in eternity. What if, what if he had decided to do something eternal with his resources? And on that night when his life was called to account, instead of having done nothing but accumulate things that are temporary in nature, he would be in eternity meeting people who met Jesus and are sharing heaven with him today because he 
made it possible. Don't let our resources direct us, determine who we are or what we're going to do. Let Christ be our identity. Let Christ be our mandate. In verse 19, I put this principle down as don't let resources detain us because ultimately Christ is our security. The falseness of his argument, the the difficulty of his narrative is in verse 19 when he says to himself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. It's detaining him from doing better and best things because he created again a false narrative that says I'm secure now I took down all my old barns I took down all my small barns and I built all these new ones and these new ones contain more and I have all of this more and now I'm secure and it was a false security if a person is in Christ if their identity is in Christ if they're following the mandate of Christ And if they're making eternal decisions instead of temporal decisions with all they are as a person, whether that is their resources, their finances, or their their accumulation, or their wealth, or their talents, or their thought processes, if they were putting all of that into who Jesus and his kingdom is, then there is absolute security. Then the activities and the shifting of this world don't impact it might make things more difficult. And this is, this is hard to say right now when, when we have inflation that's out of control, we're in the middle of a recession, we've made bad political decisions for months, actually years, and, and we're wondering what's going to happen and we're all seeing it impacting our retirement accounts and our savings and our income. Just about everybody in this room is spending more money right now than you've made this past year. Everybody, regardless of your wealth, is pretty well in that condition right now and it feels insecure. But I actually know who holds everything. And for millenniums, since the creation of time, Jesus said he's been feeding sparrows and they never go hungry. He's been creating meadows of lilies and they're always beautiful. It's protected in a place where there are no thieves, where there can't be corruption and rust and deterioration. And I love Jesus. This is the best financial advice I've ever given and it was in scripture. So I don't worry about those things but I focus my mind and my heart on the kingdom of God and the goodness of God and the provision of God and the faithfulness of God. Because Jesus said, worrying about today is basically fruitless. Worrying about tomorrow is even more fruitless because today's got enough problems of its own. That whole chapter in Matthew chapter six is a great financial guide to understanding security. I am completely secure. I could be completely impoverished and still be secure because Christ is my security. My security is not dependent upon what I accumulated. And it's in the context of that accumulation and that false narrative about accumulation and security that God says in verse 20, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you. 
and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? I'm not sure which phrase I want you to highlight in this verse. The phrase, this very night, your life is demanded of you, is very important because we don't have control over that. We don't know when that moment's coming. And no matter what we do, we can't control it. We spend a lot of time trying to control it. Our government spends a lot of time legislating things for us to try to control it. But at the end of the day, we don't know when that moment's coming. It's important to know that. But as sad as it is, it's also kind of important to know whose will they be. All this, all these resources that he had collected deluded him because Christ needs to be our destiny, not our accumulation. Carrie and I have been praying and and we've reached a point where we take estate things more seriously And we've got to list not only our children, but of organizations. To me, this is just the coolest thought in the world. After my death, I can still give to further the kingdom of God. And I've got a list, and she's getting a list, and we're praying about it, and we're going to meet with our lawyer, and we're going to set it up, because all the work we've put in our primary goal was to create self-sufficient, independent children, which has happened. And so we want to give. The same way we gave to missions while we're alive, why not give to missions after I'm gone? The same way I gave to organizations like Pastors Council and organizations that make a difference in this world now because they are teaching and guiding and advising biblical principles, why not be able to give after I'm no longer here? What if the answer to the question, whose will they be, is a definite blessing to the generations who follow us, but an even greater blessing to the Christians and the kingdom of God that will live beyond us? What are we we going to do with it? And our resources delude us. It, It gives us that false security that only Christ can be. And it gives us a false sense of the destination. The destination was never about accumulating, sitting back and saying, I can take life easy. I can eat, I can drink, and I can enjoy myself. By the way, those are all categories I'm in favor of. And with specific strategy, we work to make sure that we can do that. But what if I can do beyond that? What if I can get to a place where I can take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy myself, but at the same time answer the question, whose will they be? It's still God's. It was his before I had it. It was his while I had it. And it's his after I'm gone. Don't let our resources delude us into thinking we're going to miss this date. Because this is one day we will keep. And there's not a thing we can do about it other than anticipate what that date looks like and what happens in that moment. And if Christ is our destiny, we accomplish it. Last but not least, don't let our resources distract us. Verse 21 gives kind of the commentary over the whole thing that Jesus has been talking about. That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself. Here's the phrase I would highlight. And is not rich toward God. Christ is our priority. 
I don't, I don't need the accumulation of things to distract. I need to be able to follow what God wants. I need to be able to go in the direction that he's asking me to go. I need to be able to clearly articulate and live out and practically assimilate into my thought processes the priority that is in Jesus's command and mandate. What does God want me to do? Where does God want me to go? How does God want me to manage? And then... Ironically, we don't have time to do all that this morning. Ironically, Jesus' promise about how the birds have all they want and how the fields are beautiful and dressed all the time by God, his promise is simply a promise to provide for us, to take care of us. And he always is opening doors to take care of us. Jesus' parable is just telling us and, and reminding us, okay, let's open a door to manage these things for his glory, for his name, for his kingdom, and the people whose lives will be changed as a result of it. I'm gonna invite our team back up and I just want us to take a moment, I just want us to pray. All these things are hard. The most difficult thing is to make a decision where you're gonna go from here. And I don't mean lunch. That may be a difficult enough decision, but I know, I know anytime I sit through a message like this, even when I teach a message, by about two or three o'clock, I've kind of forgotten everything I've heard. I want us to ask God to guide us and direct us. And maybe, especially if you're married, we sit down and we have a conversation about some of these things and we make strategic, tactical decisions about how to use what God has blessed us with. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, you're so clear in scripture about money specifically, but about all resources, about our talents, about our giftings, about the things that we own, the things that we want to own, the things that we once owned, all of our possessions. We want, and I ask that you hear our heart this morning. We want to do this and manage this and steward this in a way that doesn't just simply reflect generosity, but reflects your generosity. So guide us. Guide us and take care of us and lead us to make wise decisions eternal decisions and protect us from the constant bombardment of the voices of this world that attempt to tell us how we're supposed to do it when the way we want to do it is the way you want us to do it. So guide us. Let us be a generous people. Let our church be a church that shows generosity and generous hearts all the time in our conversations and in our giving, in our activities and in our time, in everything that can be measured, let us be willing to release it for your cause and for your purpose. And Father, I also realize this is a difficult season for many people. Literally, everything we're purchasing right now costs us 
more than it has and more than it should. Everybody feels a sense of that pinch, but some are genuinely hurting today. Would you release to your children your resources? In ways we can't even imagine, make it possible to pay bills today. Make it possible to plan for the future. Make it possible to create open venues of activity in the future for our children. Make it possible even to redeploy in retirement and and use what you've given us without costing anybody anything. And even let us give a gift and a blessing to the generation that follows us. Let our frugality and carefulness and our saving be represented in a generosity that one day just says to our kids, we love you, we care about you, and here, everything we have is yours. And let us teach them that so that the pilgrimage of generosity becomes lifelong and generationally long generosity in the hearts of our families, in the hearts of our church, in your people. So yes, we need provision and we're grateful when it comes. We also need wisdom to appropriately manage all that you've given us. So here we have gratitude and willingness all in the same moment. Because you loved us, as the Apostle John said, we love you.